Welcome to Searching for the Question Live. My name is David Orban, and uh, I am very glad to have all of you following the show. We are streaming simultaneously to many platforms on Facebook, on YouTube, on Twitter, on Twitch. Uh, and uh, you can, of course, uh, subscribe, follow, like, but you can also comment and ask questions. And whatever platform you choose to do that, uh, I will be able to look at uh, your comments and if they are relevant, interesting, pull them in so that together with my guest, uh, we can answer. That is the beauty of uh, being live. Uh, uh, the guest today is uh, a fantastic uh, science fiction author, uh, polemicist, uh, passionate uh, fighter for uh, rights, uh, that uh, would have been called uh, digital rights, but uh, now, uh, as he very rightly put it in his latest column in Locus magazine, are just human rights because our digital lives are the lives that we live every day. So how can we not fight for all of those rights without artificial and useless distinctions? Cory Doctorov, um, and and I have had the chance of meeting in person at various conferences as well around the world in um, London or New York or in other places. And when uh, a few days ago he launched uh, the Kickstarter campaign for his last uh, book, uh, Attack Surface, uh, also uh, coming in a podcast edition, I enthusiastically uh, jumped in backing the campaign and inviting him to join the show, which he accepted. And so here is uh, Corey. Thank you very much for uh, coming on Searching for the Question Live. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, David. So uh, I have read all of your books and love them. And uh, tell us, let's start with that. Tell us uh, with the uh, arch of your narrative. Of, of your mixing uh, various uh, technological theme, themes, but also themes around uh, um, issues of policy and, and how technology can be a force for good or, uh, as you must create tension in your books, force for, for bad. And, and, uh, and very interestingly, theoretically, uh, the series for which Attic Surface is, uh, is the third book, is, is a young adult series. But you absolutely wrote it in a fashion that is not condescending to the, to the, to the youngsters. And as a consequence, adults uh, enjoy it uh, a lot as well. So, so tell us yeah. uh, about the series and the latest book too. Sure. So yeah, in, in 2008, I published this book, Little Brother, that as you say, is a young adult novel. It's about uh, kids in San Francisco who, uh, after a terrorist attack, find their city turned into a kind of police state. And uh, they take on the Department of Homeland Security using cryptographically secured networks built out of hacked uh, Xboxes. And um, using their superior praxis and technical knowledge, they organize a guerrilla movement that ends up kicking the DHS out of San Francisco and restoring basic human rights to the people of California. Uh, and um, 
the sequel to that book is a book called Homeland. And in Homeland, the same characters find themselves embroiled in a kind of electoral skullduggery where they have a big trove of leaks, but they're also working on a contested election with an insurgent candidate who is uh, challenging the establishment of both parties and trying to do something, you know, populist in the best sense of the word. So um, both of those books uh, did extremely well. They're New York Times bestsellers. They've been translated into many languages. You can read them in Hungarian if you'd like. Uh, and uh, they have many claims to fame. They're, you know, taught in the Cyber Institute at West Point. Um, Edward Snowden took a copy of Homeland with him when he went on the run. If you watch the documentary, you can see him grab a copy of it and stick it in his go bag before he heads for the airport in Hong Kong. And, and this year, my publisher, Tor Books, they uh, reprinted both books uh, in a new omnibus edition. And Ed was good enough to give me a new introduction for it. So he remains a fan of the series. The third book in the series is this one. It's Attack Surface, which comes out in October. And uh, Attack Surface is actually an, a standalone novel set in the same world for adults, although young adults might enjoy it as well. Um, one of the things that arose from Homeland and Little Brother is that um, at this point, hundreds, if not thousands of people have written to me or approached me at events to say, the reason I got involved in computer science or digital activism or cyber law or, or related fields, security research, cryptography, is because I read Little Brother and it enlivened me to both the promise and the peril of technology, right? That the, you know, there's a kind of pernicious story that the early digital rights movement was motivated by a kind of complacency or triumphalism that technology would automatically make the world better and all we needed to do was get out of its way. And I think that it's, it's truer to say that the motivating factor behind those early technology and digital rights movements was both a hope and excitement for what a technologically enabled world could deliver, what it would mean to have the ability for anyone to speak to anyone else without third parties being able to intervene to stop them or listen in on them or, or even know the conversation is going on, and how bad it could be if we got it wrong, right? As, as Michael Weinberg titled a, a paper he wrote when he was at Public Knowledge, this will all be so great if we don't screw it up. And, and Attack Surface, it aims to address a, you know, both the readers of Little Brother and Homeland, but also a, a different audience. It, it aims to address people who are engaged with technology today, both as users, but particularly as developers, who are trying to confront the moral weight of, of what they're doing. You know, we're at this moment now where we have a lot of what I call incipient Oppenheimers, people who are starting to worry, as Oppenheimer did when he ran the Manhattan Project, that maybe building these immortal cyber weapons is not a great idea. Maybe, maybe you know, as they say in that old uh, ske uh, comedy sketch, maybe we're the baddies. And the protagonist of Attack Surface is this young woman who appears at the beginning and the end of Little Brother and Homeland, who works for the other side. In the first book, she's working for the DHS. In the second book, she's working for a military contractor. And when we meet her in the third book, she's working for a private surveillance company that makes most of its money um, renting out surveillance services uh, to post-Soviet dictators in Eastern Europe who want to crush pro-democracy movements. And she moves home to San Francisco after this goes horribly awry. And uh, she discovers that her childhood best friend, who is now a Black Lives Matter activist in Oakland, is being targeted by the very same cyber weapons that she herself built. And she has to have this moral reckoning. 
And and like the first two books, it's, you know, a cracking techno thriller. It's about people getting in trouble with technology and getting out of trouble with technology. And it's it's very rigorous. It really attends closely to what technology can and can't do. But it's also, as with the first two books, a piece of activism in the world whose hope is to, to change the way people think about their relationship with technology and then take that changed perception and put it into motion as action. And uh, you decided to uh, treat your books very differently from practically any author since the beginning because you were able to convince uh, your, um, your uh, publisher that uh, the book uh, should be, or your books in general, should be available simultaneously uh, in, in uh, printed form that people can buy. Uh, or downloadable for free from your website. And, you know, I don't know if the deal is still standing or, or, or not, but at the time it was amazing. And what was amazing is that then, then you have been able not only to, to negotiate for that, but to then go back and say, hey, it was worth it. So, so tell us a little bit about that yeah. and, and why did you do that? Well, uh, yeah, I was the first author to use Creative Commons licenses on a commercial book. Um, I used the first licenses on my first novel, Down and Out of the Magic Kingdom. They, the license and the novel launched the same month. So it was I was very early in on this. I was around when, when Aaron Swartz and, and Larry Lessig and Lisa Ryan and other people were, were starting it. Um, my publisher was okay with going along with it uh, until they weren't. Uh, they were worried that as ebooks were becoming a more important part of their sales, that they really had to maximize how many ebooks they were selling. And um, we stopped doing Creative Commons licenses with my novel Walk Away. That was in 2017. And I've done three books since. So Walk Away radicalized my, my collection of four novellas and then this new one that's about to come out. And the sales have been about the same. Right, some of the some of the books did really well. Some of them did not as well. It doesn't seem to have had any material impact. Um, and and I'll tell you what the biggest difference is, is that to the extent that the eBooks are now primarily sold instead of given away, um, they are uh, generally speaking sold through Amazon, which is the monopolist that dominates the field. Now I have been successful with the great support of my publisher, Macmillan, and their imprint tour uh, in getting all of my books published as DRM-free eBooks. So that is to say they don't have any of the so-called copy protection on them that is a felony in both Europe and the US or and Canada and Australia and many other places is a felony to tamper with or remove. And so what that means is that when you buy my eBooks, although you're getting them from Amazon and in some sense reinforcing its hegemony, you're also not tied to Amazon forever. If someone else were to come along through some miracle of antitrust enforcement or some other shift in the market, you could take your eBooks with you if you decided you didn't want to be a Kindle user anymore. It, it, you know, the idea that your book should be locked to the platform is bizarre. It's like saying that if Walmart sells you a novel, they get to tell you which light bulbs you're, you're allowed to use to illuminate the room while you read it. It's clearly not good for uh, for readers or for publishers. And then I think this, this is a good natural segue to what's happening with this Kickstarter, because there's one area where my work is not available on Amazon, and that's audiobooks. And that's because Amazon has 
not merely the kind of dominance it has for ebooks with the Kindle. It has total dominance over audiobooks through its Audible division. It has more than 90% of that market. And they have an ironclad, non-negotiable position that if you sell your books on Audible, you have to agree to let them use DRM, which is supposed to protect you from piracy, although a quick search will find you all of the books on Audible available as free downloads on other websites. And what actually does is locks you as the listener and me as the writer and Macmillan as my publisher into Amazon's platform forever. And it gives Amazon even more market power than they have now. And so I won't let them put DRM on it. So my publisher can't sell it on Audible. And so my publisher doesn't want to pay for the audiobook rights, which is fair enough. They're not a charity, right? But they... Um, what they what they have done is they've let me retain those rights. And since I live here in Los Angeles, California, where the leading audiobook studios are, I use Skyboat Media, or an amazing studio, and where some of the greatest voice actors are, uh, I used um, Amber Benson, who is uh, best known as Buffy from, from or as uh, Tara from the Buffy TV show, Buffy the Monster Slayer. Um, I was able to produce at my own expense, paying union scale and 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 professional rates my own audiobook, which was mastered by John Taylor Williams, who does my podcast and has for more than a decade. And I am pre-selling that audiobook on Kickstarter. After the Kickstarter, it'll be available everywhere where audiobooks are, are sold, except Amazon, because they're going to require DRM. Maybe they'll change as a result of this. I, I, I'm skeptical, but maybe. But if I can pre-sell enough units, if I can sell, say, 10,000 units, that's my goal. We're, we're five days in, I'm at like 30, uh, I can't see, I can't read. Yeah, 3,176. Yeah, 3,100. So if we can, if I can bring this up to uh, to, to 10,000 or better yet, even 30,000, um, my publisher will see a path to professionally producing audiobooks, selling them through all the channels except Audible, right? To have a, a true Audible exclusive, exclusive of Audible, available everywhere except Audible. And to do this, not with all of their books, because obviously most writers don't have the profile that I do and can't do this, only to do it with their most successful, highest grossing books, right? To starve Amazon Audible of the highest grossing books that publishers produce and to bring them to the table to negotiate a fairer deal, not just allowing us to sell without DRM, but also finally allowing libraries to buy our Audible audiobooks because Audible original audiobooks can't be sold into the library channel. More than half of the audiobook bestsellers are not available for are not available for patrons at public libraries who are the most vulnerable, poorest people among us who are deprived access to a whole range of culture. Imagine if half the books published could not be circulated at libraries right it's a it's a revolting privatization of a part of our public sphere the library that's not just older than amazon but it's older than commerce and older than publishing and here we have amazon burning the library of alexandria in slow motion and so you know my hope is not just to make a bunch of money from this which you know obviously in this economy we all need to pay our mortgages somehow. But my hope is to intervene in publishing tactically at a key moment when Jeff Bezos' fortune has just swelled to $200 billion and Amazon's net worth is, or, or market cap is, has crested a trillion dollars during a time when everyone else is suffering. And to actually try to rebalance 
some of the market concentration we're seeing where Amazon is playing winner take all and we're all losing. And and that is uh, a fantastically important battle, uh, similar to the ones that uh, Larry Lessig fought uh, in uh, his uh, Root Strikers uh, um, uh, initiative and 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 his candidacy for becoming the 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 president or at least to have the right to be in the debate debates uh, in the Democratic uh, Party, which he couldn't achieve. Uh, not for lack of trying, but because apparently uh, rules being uh, uh, rejiggered after the fact. Um, and and I uh, really invite uh, our viewers to back uh, your uh, your campaign. Uh, I created uh, this short link bitly slash Corey Kickstarter, uh, which is easier to remember, but. Uh, uh, if you uh, use your favorite non-monopolistic search engine uh, to uh, find uh, the Kickstarter, it's enough to write Attack Surface uh, audiobook uh, Kickstarter, and then then you I, will find it. I recommend uh, either Ask Jeeves or Alta Vista. They're both uh, very good search engines. <laughs> <laughs> and, well, and if they don't work for you, there's always ways. And 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 you are you are dating yourself just by just by saying those words. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. My first web searches I had to do in cuneiform on stone tablets. Yes, yes. <laughs> so uh, Scott Summit, uh, who is a very fun three uh, D printing and and a very capable three D printing guy, uh, says that he loved Homeland. So so go ahead and 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 read the um, the other ones as well. Now let's let's go back a little bit. Um, and before starting, we discuss this, uh, um, and 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 you will have to repeat yourself because what you were saying was important and impactful. I claimed that the breaking point where things started to go awry uh, was with the Supreme Court decisions criminalizing peer-to-peer -peer technology, but you said I was wrong. It started much earlier than that. Uh, tell us what went wrong and when. Yeah, well, again, like uh, understanding the underlying causes is always going to be hard. And, and you have people like Thomas Piketty in Capital in the 21st Century who makes the case that the way things went wrong after the the two wars and and during the era of the of the kind of social safety net the what the french called the 30 glorious years the capital that had previously been in the hands of the richest 10% of the world slowly trickled back into their hands and that by the mid 70s they were wealthy enough that they could start diverting some of their fortunes to big political projects but whether or not you believe that we can definitely see that starting in the mid to late 70s, there were real political shifts all around the world that favored oligarchy. So between uh, Margaret Thatcher in the UK, Helmut Kohl in Germany, Augusto Pinochet in Chile, uh, Ronald Reagan in the United States, obviously, Brian Mulroney in Canada, where I'm from, we had this rise and rise of a kind of politician who viewed inequality not as a... An, uh, an example of markets going wrong, but as uh, the, the primary function of markets, right? This kind of mystical belief that what a market could do 
is reach into the world and identify the most capable among us and allocate capital to those people so that they could spend it in ways that would make us all better. You know, I sometimes see this when I criticize Elon Musk. People will come along in my Twitter threads and say, uh, well, don't criticize Musk. He is the only one with the vision to save us from climate change. We must allow him to lead us unaccountably and follow him. And the way that we know he has that vision is because he's got all of this money, right? There's this kind of tautology. Uh, you're rich because you're worthy. The way we know you're worthy is that you are rich. And so we see the institution of a series of policies that exacerbate problems of inequality instead of addressing them. You know, uh, in, in the, uh, the heyday of antitrust enforcement in the United States, there was a presumption on the part of the antitrust division of the Department of Justice that if uh, a single company dominated its industry for more than a few years in a row, that an investigation should be automatically opened into that company just to see whether they were up to no good because markets should be dynamic and no one should be able to use their market dominance to perpetuate their market dominance. We want firms to dominate because their products are good, not because they have inertia. And, um, one of the things that we did straight away in the Reagan, Thatcher, Pinochet, Mulroney era is we dismantled antitrust law. Uh, we adopted the theories of a, of a fringe kook who had been a collaborator of Richard Nixon and, and committed crimes on behalf of Richard Nixon when he was in, uh, a, a lawyer for Richard Nixon, a guy named Robert Bork. Um, and Robert Bork had this bizarre idea that the reason we shouldn't like monopolies, the only reason we shouldn't like monopolies is if they raised prices in the short term on consumers and that everything else monopolies did. So long as prices weren't going up immediately after monopolies did something monopolistic, merged with a competitor or created a vertical monopoly, that, that it was fair game. This is called the consumer harm standard. And while Reagan and Thatcher originated it, every administration and every neoliberal nation since has only increased it. And this has had the effect of turning almost every significant industry in our economy into an industry dominated by as few as one firm and sometimes as many as five or six. So, you know, as, as Tom Eastman is a software developer from New Zealand says, I'm old enough to remember when the web didn't consist of five giant websites, each filled with screenshots of text from the other four. Um, but it's not just you know, the web that has dwindled, finance, oil, logistics, they all used to, and, and publishing, uh, movies, music, we, we, we had dozens of record labels. Now we have three record labels worldwide. Um, that, that the concentration of these industries distorts all of our policies, because on the one hand, when industries are very, very concentrated, they can, uh, they can effectively conspire to set us a, a group of policy priorities, right? When, when there's only five companies in an industry, everyone knows everyone else that, you know, the way you rise through the ranks uh, in the movie industry, for example, is not by waiting someone, for someone in the org chart higher up than you to die. It's by getting poached to a rival studio and then getting poached back to your home studio. And so they all know each other. They come to agreements on what they want. And then because being a monopoly is so profitable, they can spend that money to attain policy outcomes. And that's what you see in those Supreme Court cases that you mentioned, that there was so much money spent on experts, on lobbying, on, on all manner of activity to say nothing 
of of decades of spending beforehand. So you know there are um, institutes run as fronts for uh, uh, very large oligarchic fortunes that pay to have summer education institutions for judges where they fly to Florida every summer, federal judges, and get seminars on what antitrust law should look at. Virtually every judge in the federal bench and every sitting Supreme Court judge has attended at least one, if not several of these seminars to be educated on what the law should look like. That's a thing that you can only do if you have billions in excess rents and a small enough group of actors that you can agree on how to spend them. Um, the view that uh, the damage is isolated and there's a consequence uh, if it is within tolerable bounds, as you exemplified with the increasing of prices due to monopoly, it, then the cause of the damage should be accepted and acceptable by society at large is, is horribly misguided because uh, it then can be manipulated as, as you described. Um, sometimes uh, I make the example uh, of how uh, the need for strong privacy protections uh, is, um, is, is uh, belittled by those who don't understand the implications of, of the lack of, of privacy because the society that cannot tolerate and protect minority opinions regardless of how minor that minority is at any given time, will never be able to adapt the changing understanding of how lives should be lived and allow that minority opinion to become majority opinion and change uh, society uh, overall. That is what happened, whether it is with interracial marriage or, or uh, marijuana consumption or whatever the next uh, dogmatic uh, and dogmatically repressed crime uh, is going to be suddenly legal. Um, you know, whether, for example, euthanasia, which is what I expect on a global basis, uh, going to be the next, um, the next uh, to fall, or, or or to be affirmed. So similarly, I I see here um, all kinds of of damage that are distorting people's minds and, and understanding of the world, like the tautology that you very well illustrated, uh, regardless of the fact that uh, I want Mars to be colonized and I want uh, uh, the ecosystem to be uh, preserved or improved by um, magnificent machines and beautiful technologies. Uh, our uh, defying of of Elon Musk is totally unwarranted. Um, I don't know if you remember um, Jorge Luis Borges' uh, Lottery in Babylon short story, uh, where fantastically exaggerating uh, the role of uh, uh, luck and chance in our lives uh, is is illustrated, except for those who don't have to participate in the lottery. So it looks like this neo-aristocratic stratification of society creates the Orwellian uh, pigs that are equal to every other animal, but maybe not, not really. Um, so are we close to the 
real need of a global civil disobedience against laws that uh, we feel are unjust and how should those uh, manifest uh, themselves um, we have seen how you can be as right in 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 your theories as as you want but when the practice is through destruction of property you will be labeled a terrorist and uh, every tool will be unleashed against you um tools that are legal tools that are anti-constitutional it doesn't matter so being smart about how we go about changing society is crucial the way how um gandhi uh, used uh, the salt taxes in india to create uh, a movement that the brits couldn't stop uh, are we smart enough to to change things um, are the chinese our saviors uh, um, how how it's it's not easy but uh, we've got to do it so you you mentioned larry lessig before and i think that uh his framework for where social change or or what factors determine our social outcomes is really good to bring in here um, Larry talks about there, the idea that there are four forces that act on our society, that there's code, that which is technologically possible, law, that which is lawful to do, norms, that which is socially acceptable, and markets, that which is profitable. And these obviously all interact with each other. So, so take the example that you just had of uh, property damage, right? It's obviously it's unlawful, but depending on your relationship to the state, it may or may not be normatively acceptable. So for example, no one prosecuted people who tore down the statues of Stalin or Saddam Hussein, right? Those were, those were both considered completely reasonable things to do. Likewise, when white nationalists occupied the Meyer Wildlife Reserve and did millions of dollars in property damage, they were not only not um, convicted, but they were in fact lionized by many of the so-called law and order people. So one of the things that we need to remember is that what constitutes order and what constitutes crime is not merely a matter of what's in the statute book, but it's the intersection of the statute and the power structure's willingness to enforce the statute. That's why proceduralism on its own is bankrupt, right? You can't just say, well, so long as you have the First Amendment, you can secure your speech, because we know that there are times when some people's speech is protected and times when other people's speech is not. But, uh, you know, I, I recently wrote this uh, a short book called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism that One Zero published. And it's a rebuttal to Shoshana Zuboff and her book, uh, In the Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Uh, where she proposes that the reason that companies spy on us, uh, tech companies, and the reason that they're so big is related, that they spy on us to get the data to use algorithms to manipulate us so that we do things that make them richer. And uh, I don't think that's right. I think she's got it backwards. I think they establish monopolies that let them spy on us with impunity and that they're not good at manipulating us, but they don't have to be good. They just have to be better than the alternative, right? If you're going to sell refrigerators, it's really hard because it's hard to find places where people who want to buy refrigerators gather 
because, you know, the median person buys one refrigerator or fewer in their entire life. So it's hard to find a place to do it. And so if Google can spy on everyone and find people who search for refrigerator reviews, you can increase the conversion rate on a refrigerator ad from 0.00001% to like 0.001%, which is, you know, a thousand fold increase in, in efficacy, but still a very small effect size. And that the reason we should worry about surveillance is because it's both suborned by uh, governments, right? The, the way that governments affect such amazing surveillance of dissident movements is by raiding private troves. And secondarily, because uh, firms use it not just to fend off, uh, not to manipulate consumers, but to um, attack us, right? To, to do things like spy on their unions, to um, uh, compromise us through all kinds of uh, manipulation, or not manipulations, but of uh, disclosures of our lives, and, and to pit us against one another. And that uh, the remedy for this is to do something about monopolies. But as we said before, it's hard to do something about monopolies because they have a lot of money to spend on preserving their monopolies. And so to get rid of them, that the, the salt tax fight that we need to find is not a unitary action, but rather it's an iterative cascade of actions that open space in other domains. So say, for example, we have this conversation now. And people go, you know, I, I never really thought about the role that monopolies play in my life. You know, I, I just assume that the reason people believed in the flat earth and eugenics and QAnon was because like Google and Facebook manipulated them, as opposed to the fact that everyone uses one information source and one social media source. So if something trends there, it becomes significant to our lives. And it's not because they're brilliant at manipulating us. It's because they control access to information. And the way to solve that is to break them up and make them smaller. So now we have a political will. So, you know, we have laws on the books all over the world. The laws haven't changed that allow for enforcement of uh, effective, robust competition law. The political will has changed. Well, if this becomes an election year issue, which it certainly is becoming, in fact, the antitrust action that the attorneys general at the state level in the U.S. undertook against Google has just been hijacked by Bill Barr, who's probably going to screw it up because he's trying to politicize it because he thinks fighting Google will get him points with like QAnon followers, right? And so uh, now we have this like actual like political space to talk about robust antitrust in, in, uh, environment. And that also opens the space for commercial activity. So you have things like um, Epic who make uh, the, the game Fortnite bringing unprecedented antitrust action against Apple for monopolistic activity in respect of their store. Well, if they win that, and they don't have clean hands here, and you know, no one should pretend they do, but if they win that, that creates a precedent that lots of entrepreneurs and financiers will get in involved with, not because they're opposed to oligarchy or want to see Apple cut down to size, but because they want some of Apple's money, right? They'll do it for their own goddamn reasons. So now we have legal changes, creating normative changes, creating commercial changes, and then you have toolsmiths, both open source software developers, free software developers, commercial firms, governments, and so on, who are going to start developing the tools to allow people to, for example, jailbreak their phones so that they can install a third-party app or to override their Internet of Things devices that are spying on them and snitching on them, right? So all of these things, each one opens space in the next and the next and the next. And, you know, property destruction has been incredibly effective as a tool for creating political change, right? That's what the Boston Tea Party was. So let's not rule it out. 
but let's let's address it as a tactic that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't work and make sure that when it works we use it and when it doesn't work we eschew it um let's uh, jump ahead 20 or 30 years asks emiliano when brain machine interfaces will be potentially ubiquitous and you are a science fiction author uh, actually you uh, wrote uh, the rapture of the nerds together with charlie strauss uh, and uh, that is uh, in a post singularitarian um, uh, planet and solar system uh, but uh, let's uh, do it uh, with uh, the uh, with 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 the, the kind of reasoning that we started to to do now so uh, one one of the one of the things why why ai is going to be so surprising uh, uh, for for many um, not the the weak uh, glimpses of AI we are seeing now, but the, the thousands or millions of times more powerful ones that are going to succeed them, is not only because there is no way of boxing them in, they will be able to get out of, of any tri type of, of, of limitation we impose on them, but because contrary to humans where we needed 10,000 or 100,000 years, depending on how you count, to start understanding how we are made, the DNA, and we are only now starting to understand uh, how our brain is made, they are going to be transparent to themselves. N no monk is able to meditate for decades to achieve the kind of introspective enlightenment that an AI is going to be able to achieve just by looking in the mirror. Hmm. And then depending on the on 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 its on its uh, goals and, and and compulsions potentially decide what to do about how it is made. But of course DRM may stop at least us from achieving that kind of insight or achieving the benefits of this kind of insight, will AI be born a criminal because of DRM? Wow. Well, so look, I, I think what you just laid out is a great science fiction plot, but I don't know that it um, has a lot of technical predictive value. Like, what we call AI today, as you noted, is it's not just thousands of times less powerful. It is different. It is not the same thing as an intelligence, right? Machine learning uh, is a statistical inference engine that observes past st uh, statistical correlations between uh, phenomena. So when you type the word, hey, the next word you usually type is darling because the person you text most often is your romantic partner. And so it figures out that if you type, hey, that it should suggest darling and then has a ranked list of things that you might be able to type. I mean, it's just, that's all it is at a foundational level, right? If you think about um, facial recognition, when I see these features and then I predict a face, I am right usually. Therefore, when I see these features, there is probably a face, right? So there are there are phenomena in the world that are objective, right? Like um, 
when uh, when oxygen and carbon are combined at a certain uh, uh, intensity, combustion takes place, right? Oxidization takes place. And there are other activity that are non-deterministic and that have confounding factors that can never be fully understood. So there's a guy named Clifford Geertz, who's a hero of the anthropology movement, who wrote a, a famous paper called uh, Thick Description, which is a foundational text in anthropology, where he recounts being an anthropologist and sitting in a, in a, a forest and observing two of his subjects who were from a, uh, a so-called primitive tribe, right? They were, they were agrarian uh, people who had a very different culture to his own. And he sees one person wink at the other. And he asks himself, what does that wink mean? Is there, is it flirting? Is it aggression? Did the person um, have some grit in their eye? And he concludes that the only way you can answer this is with so-called thick description, right? You have to go and ask them, right? And then in order to figure out whether they're telling the truth, you don't just have to ask them, you have to understand their culture. And the idea that you can say, when I see a wink, it is followed by activity that is correlated with flirtation, therefore winking is flirting, is obviously flawed because we all know of instances in which winking is not flirting, right? So to, to unpick the, the correlative relationship between someone's criminal history and whether they will commit a crime again, someone's workplace history and whether they will be a good worker in the future, you need to understand not just the statistical matter, the quantifiable elements, but you also need to be able to analyze the qualitative elements. And it is a uh, an absolute fallacy of the technical world to say that because qualitative elements are hard to do computational work on, we can vaporize the qualitative elements of any problem, analyze the quantitative residue that remains, and treat it as though it tells you a full picture. And we saw this just like, Two weeks ago, there was a, a pair of physicists who came up with a model for reopening a university. And they gave all these uh, interviews in advance where they said, oh, you know, we're really good at physics. And so we decided we'd look at epidemiology. And it's kind of boring because it's so simple. So we sat down and we like made this epidemiological model. And this university can fully reopen using our model. They will never exceed 100 cases. 10 days later, they had 760 cases and shut down the university because the physicist model did not account for the idea that like students would drink too much beer and have eyeball licking parties because that stuff was in the, in the, in the thick description, not in the dubious quantitative residue that remained when all you got was the wink and not the cultural understanding of its context. So the idea that if we just do more machine learning, we'll get AI is a bit like the idea that if we just breed horses well enough, we'll get an internal combustion engine, you know? And I, I think that it's wrong. And, and moreover, while we, in the era of advanced horse breeding, we had some inklings of what an internal combustion engine would do, right? We could agree on what it would mean to have an engine. We had other forms of engines like water wheels that could do mechanical work. We, we had a, uh, a rudimentary theory of how the mechanisms work and so on. We have none of those things. We don't even agree on what the problem is when we say we have an artificial intelligence because we don't agree on an intelligence. There's no unitary definition of intelligence that is widely agreed on, even within the AI field, let alone in the broader field of human intelligence study. And so I think that you see people like Musk demonstrating 
uh, uh, so-called brain interfaces. And what he neglects to mention is that they are replicating functionality that has already been done in the lab. And that in fact is not a massive advance on what was being done in the lab many years before, because the approach that they're taking has so far been mostly a dead end, right? That, that no one has really figured out. It's, it's not like we were improving metallurgy and getting to the point where we could find down the tolerances so that we could make a piston that could withstand the pressure of internal combustion. And we just knew that if we could make a few more metallurgical breakthroughs, we could attain glory. This is like, we don't know about metallurgy yet. We have tried a bunch of things to make metal stronger and everything we do is capping out at a certain tolerance and nothing we do is improving it. And we don't know if we're going to have to abandon our entire approach. You know, maybe we can, we can't do like maybe hitting metal with a hammer will never get accurate enough to make a piston. Maybe we're going to have to try molding a thing we don't know anything about. Right. And maybe like the entire business of spending all of our lives getting better at hammering metal on an anvil will never attain the tolerances that we need to make a piston. In which case, the fact that we have seen some modest advances on existing so-called brain interfaces tells us nothing about whether those advances will lead to significant alterations in the way that we interact with computers using our brains. Right. So I'm I'm skeptical of all that, but I want to put a button on it by saying, even stipulating that we do make these breakthroughs, you put your finger on an important point which is that what the technology does is nowhere near so important as who it does it for and who it does it to, right? That if the technology is designed so that on the one hand, as it is in the United States, it's a felony to remove the digital locks under Section 12.1 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And on the other hand, uh, if the uh, firm adds conditions to your use of it, uh, through terms of service, it's a felony to violate those terms of service, as it has been argued it is under uh, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And they bind you over to binding arbitration, as firms routinely do, which means that you don't even get to put your case in front of a judge if you if you want to challenge any of that. You have to see a corporate arbitrator paid for by the company who then decides whether or not they're going to rule against the company, right? And if they bind their employees to secrecy, and if they bind their employees to non-compete so they can't leave, I mean, you know, there's a great Hungarian angle on this, which is that the guy who invented the, uh, you know, core science behind the modern uh, processor, Shockley, who got the Nobel Prize for the silicon transistor, gathered this group of eminent scientists and started a company called uh, Fairchild uh, Semiconductors lost his mind, they think he had a stroke, became a eugenicist, spent all of his Nobel Prize money and all the time he was supposed to be spending making microchips, touring the country, arguing that we should sterilize brown people and offering them his Nobel Prize money to get sterilized, uh, completely failed to make a microprocessor and his eight top scientists, along with their Hungarian top talent, quit his company and because non-competes weren't enforceable in California, founded a small company called Intel that you may have heard of and did make a working processor that we have computers today. But today we have widespread use of, of, of uh, non-compete. So all the people who understand what the company that made the shitty AI did wrong can't make a better one because they're all under non-compete and non-disclosure and you can't get justice and you're not allowed to violate their terms of service and you can't reverse engineer the technology because of DMCA 1201. 
then whatever defects lurk in those early AIs will magnify. And so, you know, we don't need AIs to see how technology can be distorted in ways that enhance oligarchy, undermine self-determination, and make things worse for all of us. All we need is like iPhones to see that happening. And if we have the iPhone model for AIs, we are so screwed. And like probably the most hopeful thing about this whole rant is that we probably can't make AIs. <laughs> uh, well, um, so so there are certain tools that we need, and we don't even know what those tools are yet in order to face and 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 address our next challenges. We don't know if the great filter of extinction is 10 years from now or a thousand years from now uh, and and our ability to design implement and and powerfully but responsibly wield uh, those tools um is is important because the um universe is not teeming with intelligence as we see it today and and we don't know the answer to Fermi's paradox, but uh, if it is like it looks, it is that it is not teeming with intelligence, then screwing up the the human trajectory could have pretty important implications. Well, important uh, for humans. Well, uh, especially for humans. <laughs> especially I mean, for humans. The universe doesn't care. The universe seems to love barren rock. Right, the that, universe is like a hundred percent about barren rock. <laughs> that's right. That's right. The, uh, in in a good approximation, and 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 we, we the universe doesn't care because it doesn't know what caring is, but we do, and and um, so so there have been technologies that became so pervasive that not adopting them meant extinction. And and we, especially those of us with of, of European descent, had very few qualms about uh, exterminating um, civilizations because they were primitive uh, under any or some definition of, of primitive at a given time. Uh, but but also more apparently benign examples uh, like. Uh, there are castles in Italy where I'm speaking from where uh, there are graffiti on the walls because the prince was proud that his guests could write. That, it, the exotic and esoteric knowledge of, of reading and writing was to be displayed through that, uh, that act. Today, if you can't read and write, you have very little chance to be an active economic participant in in modern society and i can fully envision future technologies that are going to be equally impossible to to renounce um, the the amish are good in resisting technology for uh surprisingly long periods of time but uh they are they are barely to tolerated inside the, uh, the the U.S. society. Um, one of the reasons why learning what are the new dynamics of of Amish like tolerance for those who renounce certain technologies matters is because 
millions, if not billions of people are reaching the limits of their adaptability. And if we push them beyond that, they will not be able to survive. So we have to build a society that learns how to tolerate those who can't cope with the pace of change that we are imposing on them. And, and uh, if you are wrong, and we can build AI, um, I have started talking about a paradigm I call of jolting technologies, where we have been talking about exponential change, but the rate of change in certain areas appears to be itself accelerating, increasing. And jolt is the first derivative of acceleration in mathematics. There are two terms, actually. The other is jerk. But jerking technologies didn't sound right, so I chose the other one. <laughs> Wise. And 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 so my my question, and and thank you for being with us so long. So this may be the last one. Yeah, I think so. Can we stop implementing technologies that could drive us to the genocide of billions of people? Yeah, I think that uh, this is not a, I, I mean, it's not a technological question, as as I think you've just implied, it, it is as much a social question as a technological question. There are clearly like some technological dimensions, you know, back to code law norms and markets, things that are technically impossible don't need to be illegal, right? It's because they're technically impossible. It's a self, like, we don't need a law against time travel, right? It's that's the thing that, that stops time travel is just the implausibility of time travel. So uh, I think that um, when you look at the Amish, it's it's important to get a like a nuanced sense of what they're doing because they they are in fact very aggressive adopters of technology, but very selective adopters of technology. Uh, you know, leaving aside all the other elements of Amish life, there's like some deep problems with misogyny and so on. Uh, and homophobia and whatever, racism. But leaving aside all those other elements and just focusing in on the way that they relate to technology, they have communities where they have a social contract that says that when a new technology comes along, certain people who are enthusiastic about technology will try it, report back to the group about what it did to their life, what the qualitative experience of it was, right? The thick description. And then the group will convene and through their own decision-making process, decide whether and how to adopt it. So for example, telephones are a thing that Amish people use, but only in the barn and not in the house. Because the Amish way of life is enhanced by being able to summon a veterinarian when your livestock is dying, but not by replacing the in-person visits that are a cornerstone of Amish community with telephone calls. And, um, we are currently living through moments where people are trying to attain comparable agreements about how to do technological use. So I call myself a Zucker vegan. I don't use any Facebook products. I only have, uh, I only have, you know, I don't use WhatsApp. I don't use Instagram and I don't use Facebook. And uh, other people who want to talk to me have to find other ways of talking to me. They, we can't, we, you know, I, I won't meet them there. And um, I'm not the only one. There are a lot of people who have these technological proclivities. Uh, in particular, you know, I think of like in my social group, there is a large group of people 
who don't like instant messaging because unless they're unless they're using it to set up like a like a real time thing right like if you're at a at a at a park and you're trying to find each other you send each other an sms but if you want to contact someone through the day to ask them a question that isn't time sensitive or to socialize with them you send them an email because it's respectful because it allows them to finish what they're doing now and get back to you in their own time rather than insisting that the two of you be available socially at the same moment. And um, one of the things that cuts very hard against this kind of adaptation, these community-wide adaptations, where people make their own determinations, not just about which technologies they'll use, but how they'll use them, is the uh, injunction against interoperability. The, the laws that stop people from modifying their technologies, right? Like if you want to use Twitter to have a small private community where you're all private to each other, your tweets aren't visible in other people's private time, public timelines, um, or Facebook in the same way, both companies default and repeatedly return to a, a sort order that is not chronological but rather is, in, is designed by an algorithm or, or chosen by an algorithm that is designed to, quote, maximize engagement, which in practice means finding things that seem inflammatory and promoting them to the top of the stack. Thankfully, the algorithms aren't great, but finding inflammatory material is not hard. Uh, you know, certainly you can just look for curse words, you know. And um, if you can make a third-party Twitter client or if someone else can make it and you can use it, that undoes Twitter's sorting by controversy and resorts by chronology, then you and your friends can use Twitter in one way and not in another way. But it requires that you be able to adapt the tool. And because firms want you to use tools in ways that benefit their shareholders, and because benefit to shareholders usually comes at the expense of customers, they take enormous measures to prevent customers from adapting or altering their tools. And I, I want to show you something. Oh, here it is. So this is a, a 10,000-year-old stone axe head, right? And it was designed by a person to fit their hand, to suit their needs, right? And if it didn't suit their needs, they could modify it. And if they couldn't modify it, they could ask someone else to modify it. They weren't limited to the choices that their toolsmith made. And for as long as computers have been around, users, and not power users, or, or not what we think of as power users, people who look like you and me, but rather the users who are never in the room when the tools are designed, right? You know the phrase, so easy my mom can use it? Moms are not in the room when the tools are designed, which means that for moms to use the tools, they have to adapt the tools to suit their needs because no one asks them what tool they need, right? So moms are the ultimate power users. And moms, poor people, people in the global south, they have been adapting their tools most aggressively through this time. And they are the ones most in harm's way when we have this prohibition. And so if we are going to survive these shocks you describe, it is going to require that we and the people we are in community with be able to make conscious decisions about how to use the tools and then to make those decisions concrete by altering the tools so that they can be used primarily in that way. Corey, wonderful. And thank you so much. 
during the time that we spoke, the backers went up a few dozen. And uh, we are not tracking things so thinly and finely to be able to attribute to this uh, hour of conversation that as a consequence. Uh, however, I'm very happy and I'm happy to 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 keep helping uh, uh, during the the campaign. There are still 25 days to go uh, to travel or to decouple no to to, to decouple to, to multiply by 10 uh, the number okay. of backers and uh, and uh, so uh, let's uh, make attack surface a great success in order to start fighting the monopolies and the, the, the trusts and the wrongly designed the starting points kickoff points of a future uh, that we are building together um, and attack surface may be pointed at uh, from decades as the starting point of that well thank you david and I'll, i'm going to mention lastly that my first picture book came out in july uh, Posey the Monster Slayer, about a little toy hacker, a girl who who hacks her toys to turn them into monster hunting weapons and keeps waking her parents up by haunting, uh, hunting monsters in the middle of the night. Uh, and, and they keep tucking her into bed. And in the end, uh, she's kept them up so long that they turn into zombies. Wonderful, uh, and, and wonderful. And, and in, in, inspired, by, inspired by conversations with your daughter, who is uh, also, so. also, also called Posey. Yes, 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 indeed. Well, Wonderful. thank you very much. It was, a, it was an absolute treat. And thanks for all the viewers. And thanks for everyone who backed the campaign. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, uh, thank you, everyone, for uh, being on uh, Searching uh, uh, for the Question live uh, with us today. And uh, I will see you at uh, the next episode. I will ask you, did you back Corey's uh, uh, campaign? And, and the next guest will say, well, what, what, are, what are you talking about? You must push my book now. Uh, Charlie Strauss, Kevin Kelly are all jealous because their book is not coming out in time or too late. No, I'm joking. Uh, they, they are welcome. They are, they are going to be in the show soon. Thank you. And uh, see you uh, at uh, Searching for the Question live soon.